So there we go. We are live. Um, and today, we're going to be in Acts chapter 6. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn there. And we're going to continue on in our series on the church, but in a little bit different way. Russ last week introduced church government and talked about elders or pastors, shepherds. Did a fantastic job. He walked through 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 1 through 11, or 1 through 5, 6, something like that. This week, we're going to be in Acts chapter 6, verse 1 through 7. And we're going to see a little bit more about pastoral ministry, about the work of elders, pastors, but then we're also going to, going to see about deacons. We're going to use, learn some things about deacons. And then we're actually going to see some things about the congregation as well. And we're going to see kind of three levels of responsibility. Not levels as far as more importance or less importance, but levels in, in, in as far as there's different authorities that God gives different people within the body of Christ. And so we're going to look at kind of three different groupings of people that God addresses in Acts chapter, Acts chapter 6, verse 1 through 7. Now, uh, one thing that's going to be helpful when you're reading your Bibles that I think we can kind of dive into a little bit here this morning is the difference between when the Bible has uh, descriptive elements and when the Bible has prescriptive elements, okay? This morning, we're going to look at some descriptive elements that actually get into some prescriptive things. So it goes like this. There's a narrative in the Bible. There's a story. And in a story, the Bible is going to, God's Word is going to describe a historical happening, something that happened. But it may not necessarily be prescribing what should happen every day uh, within the people of God in every church across the globe. Okay, so it describes something. The easiest kind of way to do this is talk about Balaam's donkey. Balaam's don donkey in the Scriptures spoke. But it did not, does not prescribe to us, the Scriptures don't prescribe for us to go out and talk to donkeys. And ask them, hey, what does God want me to do? You know, that would be odd, right? Uh, well, God spoke through Balaam's donkey, therefore I'm going to go to the, lo the local donkey farm and hear from God. Okay? It describes something that happens. It does not prescribe something for us to do. That's what happens when you're reading narratives in the Bible. It's important to be able to realize that. There's a description of historical events, but it may not be prescriptive. Okay? Does that make sense? Now today, we're going to be in a narrative, so it's going to describe something. Now how do you know if something is just describing a historical event, or if it's prescribed for us, if it's something that's more than just a description? Well, this is when the rest of the Bible, knowing the rest of the Bible, is going to be incredibly helpful. When you're reading a narrative, and you see points in the narrative that are made, if the rest of the scriptures then prescribe the points that are made in the description, then we can know, okay, this is something beyond just describing something in the early church. This is something that is now prescribed for us, and we're going to navigate through this here in just a second. So uh, we're going to see deacons called into assistance for the church in Jerusalem. Now, that's a description. We're going to see it described. The elders, the pastors, the apostles are going to call for the church to pick out seven men full of wisdom and of the Holy Spirit to act as official servants of the church. So it described what happened in Jerusalem. Well, in 1 Timothy chapter 3, here's what we get. We see a prescription. 1 Timothy, you can just keep your, your finger in Acts, and you can turn if you want, or if you just want to, uh, to listen along, you can. Here's the description of what is prescribed in Acts, excuse me, the prescription of what is described in Acts chapter 6. This is 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 8. Deacons, likewise, must be dignified. Not double-tongued, not addicted to too much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of faith with a clear conscience. They hold the mystery of faith. It's another way of uh, holding to the, the Christian faith. Like Stephen, 
who was a deacon in Acts chapter 7. We see that he was very strong doctrinally, so much so that he gave his life preaching the gospel and died in a very similar way of Christ, saying, uh, forgive them, forgive them. They don't know not what they're doing. De- Stephen was a deacon who held firm the faith, the clear conscience. Verse 10, and let them also be tested first. Let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Their wives likewise must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their own households well. Okay, there's this household connection like there was last week. Uh, for a deacon to be a deacon for the people of God, he needs to be deacon in his own, own household well. For those, verse 13, who serve well as deacons, gain a good standing for themselves and also a great confidence and faith that is in Christ Jesus. So we see in the scriptures these two offices. We see elders and we see deacons. And this comes along and it prescribes what is described in Acts chapter 6. So now we're going to look at Acts chapter 6, and I want to take us to first century Jerusalem. So I'm going to ask you to do something unique today. I'm going to ask you to close your eyes and just go in your imagination to the place that I take you. It's first century Jerusalem, so go ahead and close your eyes. We're going to do like a first grade thing here, okay? We're going to play an imagination game. You're in Jerusalem. You're amongst the 120 whom Jesus told to wait in Jerusalem till you're clothed with power on high. Don't do anything. You wait. He'd already told you to go, and then he told you to wait. Jesus, what is it? Go or wait? Go, and then the first part of going is wait. And so you're waiting in Jerusalem until you're clothed with power on high. You're waiting, you're waiting, you're waiting, you're gathering, you're hearing the preaching, and all of a sudden, on Pentecost Sunday, the Holy Spirit comes to the proclamation of Peter, and the Holy Spirit comes and begins to work, and we see tongues of fire descend upon the people of God, and the 120 in the upper room, and we see revival break forth. We hear Peter preach, and we remember Peter preaching, and he preaches, and 3,000 people repent of their sins, and they believe the gospel on that day. Repent and be baptized, all of you, for the forgiveness of sins. And we're blown away. We've never seen revival like this. We're walking the streets of Jerusalem, and each day, more by more, number by number, person by person, we see the Word of God increasing, and more and more people are meeting Jesus. There is testimony after testimony. It's impossible for us to hear of all the testimonies of how many people have met Christ in Jerusalem in these days. The joy is filling the streets, flooding the streets. Miracles are happening. The gospel is being proclaimed. The joy and the excitement is unparalleled. It's unprecedented. This Jesus who was dead is now alive, and he has sent us forth in the power of the Holy Spirit to preach and proclaim this gospel, and we've never seen anything like this. My neighbors are becoming, uh, becoming Christians. My friends are becoming Christians. The Holy Spirit is testifying to the message of the gospel through powerful signs and wonders. The work is being done. And now, all of a sudden, there's up to 5,000 people in our church, in the church, the church of Jerusalem, 5,000 in number. This is a massive work. How exciting it is to walk the streets of Jerusalem. Even amongst persecution, we know our message is worth the fight. It's worth the battle. And we may be told, hey, you may not preach this gospel, but we will stand and say to the authorities, if need be, You tell us if it's right to obey you or God. We cannot help and testify what we have seen and heard. You say don't preach. God tells me I must. It's a message worth dying for. We'll give our very lives. We'll let our children see us die proclaiming the gospel of Jesus. We know this message is not just for Jerusalem. We want to see it go forth. Now open your eyes. 
Jerusalem. This is what's happened. There's 5,000. We've seen incredible things. We, we've walked, we've seen God work, we've seen miracles happen. And this is the scene that we get to in Acts chapter 6. So look with me, verse 1 through 7. Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, they're up to 5,000 now according to chapter 4, verse 4, 5,000 in number. A complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up the preaching of the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, pick brothers, therefore, brothers and sisters, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering. And there, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith, and the Holy Spirit, and Philip. And I've practiced these this week. Let me see if I get these right, these names. I even wrote them down somewhere. Um, and where, where is my word that I wrote down? I did. I wrote them down, I promise. Somewhere. I even practiced, and I can't find them in my notes. Uh, but uh, Prochorus and Nicanor and Timon and Parmius and Nicholas, a proselyte from Antioch. These they sat before the apostles. They prayed, laid their hands on them. In verse 7, And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. And a great many priests became obedient to the faith. Okay, here it is. We have a description. We have a description of the first deacons. What happened? What was happening in the midst of the church that brought forth this office that God has instituted? Okay, well, it starts with a complaint. Imagine that. The people of God complaining, right? It's never happened in the history of the church or even in the history of old and the Old Testament. The people of God never complain. In fact, Christians are marked by being people who never complain, who always see the bright side of life, who always get along and always walk in unity, who, who never gossip, never slander each other, and they're just always peaceful at all times. I mean, that's always marked the people of God, has it not? Okay, we hear the comedy in that. No, okay, that's not the case. Uh, here we see a valid complaint brought to the apostles. First, we see that the people were increasing in numbers, so revival was happening. And what, what's interesting is that there was a daily distribution. This was not, the early church was not just simply concerned with the message getting out there. They were concerned of taking care of the family. And this, this happened over and over again. The people of God, Galatians says, let us do good to all people, especially those of the household of faith. Here, we find that there was a role, there was a record of the widows in the church in Jerusalem. And there was a daily distribution, not only to widows, but others in need within the people of God that was administered by the apostles. So when somebody had a need, there would be a, a community pool, not communistic pool, but there would be, a, in, in general, there would be private property that would be given over to the people of God to meet the needs of the church. And in fact, this very much happens today. We look at Acts 2 and often we think, well, that would be wonderful if we all lived without need and there was never a need among us. And I would argue that that actually happens, that if you ever present a need to us, and if you're ever in need, if anybody in this church is ever in need, I have no doubt that the people of our church would do whatever we could to meet that need. And we need to be the kind of people who are honest enough and vulnerable enough to say, we need help. And when that need is presented, there would be help that the body of Christ would bring. Do you guys agree with that? So if you're ever in a spot needing help, before we help the people that are outside this family of faith, we help each other. 
So if we're in a spot financially, if we're in a spot where we're just emotionally wrecked, we're spiritually hurting, um, we have to inform each other. This still happens today. We help each other out. So let us know. You know, if, if your electricity is getting turned off because you don't have the money to pay for, like, tell us and we will pay the bill. That's what we do. The people of God take care of each other. This is what we see. This description is more than just a description. It's a prescription as well in the rest of the scriptures. Let us do good to everyone, especially those of the household of faith. So there was a, there was a role and there was a need and there were some people within the church that began to complain, saying, hey, listen, these Greek-speaking Jews, non-Jewish, not the Jewish-speaking Jews, but the, the Greek-speaking, the Hellenist, Greek-speaking Jews, uh, the widows of that community are not being, their needs are not being met in the exact same way as the others were being met. Now, I love this because we see that the church was willing and not scared to approach the apostles. They had freedom to bring their concerns to the twelve apostles. Now think about the intimidation factor that could have been present in Jerusalem with the twelve and with the rest of the congregation. These twelve walked with Jesus. Okay? Keep in mind that the book of Acts is a 30-year book. This is not all, all, The book of Acts is not just one year. So it's not just happening here, happening there. This is a long period of time through the book of Acts. But they would have known, the 5,000 would have known that these apostles, clearly they walked with Jesus. And so there could have been, with the apostle Peter, with the rest of the 12, there could have been a high level of intimidation that they could have brought upon the people of God. But we see clearly here by this description that that was not the case. The people were willing to bring their complaint to the 12. You see that, right? Their complaint was brought, and they said, our widows, these widows are not... The needs are not being met in the same way as the rest of the widows. Now, I'll say this. This is important. We see early on the role of the congregation. The role of the congregation in Acts chapter 6, verse 1, is simply this. Watch out for each other. The congregation took notice of the needs of the rest of the congregation. Okay, This is us. Okay, This is the congregation, the body of Christ. We see it wasn't the apostles missed this. Okay? The rest of the congregation didn't. Somehow or another, they didn't see some of the things that were happening here. The congregation recognized there's a, kind of a squeaky wheel here, and we need to figure this out. So we need to go complain, bring our complaint to the apostles, and see what can be done to address this issue. Well, they responded appropriately. Verse 2, look at it with me. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up the preaching of God, preaching of the Word of God, to serve tables. Look down at verse 4. Skip verse 3 real quick. Look at verse 4. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to ministry of the Word. The apostles' first step after hearing this report was to gather the entire church. Now think about the organization and the structure that would have been required to gather a church of 5,000. It's a massive amount of administrational activity happening to be able to spread the word and gather. Just a quick statement like that. Sounds simple. Well, they just gather the whole church. Well, it's easy with our church, right? We just gather everybody. Hey, Sunday morning, let's all gather together. Or let's go to Hank and Marie's. We'll gather together over there. Or let's go wherever. It's, it's, it's easier when you're dealing with 50 to 60 people. When you're dealing with 5,000 people, that's difficult. Okay? They, there are so many details that are just left out. Well, where do they meet? Was it Solomon's Colonnade? Was it at the temple? Where did they gather? We don't know. But the 12 summoned the 5,000 to come to gather together. So here's the scene. 5,000 people 
and they're dealing with this complaint. Now talk about, if you've ever been in a church business meeting, talk about a huge family gathering, right? <laughs> this is a lot. Fortunately, they didn't have microphones set up. They didn't have microphones then, so they didn't have microphones set up throughout the, throughout the city. But there's this gathering happening. It's a family meeting. It's more than a business meeting. It's more than just a, uh, you know, whatever. It's a family gathering where the whole number was gathered together. And here's what the apostles said. The apostles led this meeting by saying something would not be right here. There would be a wrong response here for us to take. And congregation, we need to let you know what the wrong response would be. The wrong response to this would be, okay, we the twelve will stop preaching the word and praying so much. We will stop ministering with the word and studying the word and praying as much. And we will go and we will meet the needs of these Hellenistic widows, these widows that are apparently being neglected. The first step was to tell them this would be wrong. It would be wrong for us to do this. At first glance, that sounds like, my goodness, why would that be wrong? And again, he doesn't just stop there. But here's where they lead the congregation. They serve the congregation by telling them what would be wrong. They keep the central thing, the main thing, the main thing. The ministry of the word and prayer. Now, this is very relevant for a time like we're living in. Okay, I've been told uh, on Twitter and Facebook and the news outlets like crazy uh, how to address this situation that's happening in Dallas and the different shootings that have happened to, to African Americans throughout our country. Um, it, it, basically, everybody has an opinion of what pastors should say or shouldn't say on a Sunday morning. How are you going to address it? How are you not going to address it? And what I find very hopeful about this right here is that a need that needs to be addressed, okay, doesn't derail the central focus of prayer and ministry of the Word in Jerusalem, okay? It needs to be addressed, but it doesn't derail the central focus. And here is what the possibility of things like what's happening in Dallas, North. Here's, the here's what can happen. It is a noble thing to fight for racial inclusivity and justice, it is a good and right thing, and we need to, by God's grace. But what is the way in which we do this? And we need to recognize that there has been racial injustices. In fact, there has been abuse even um, to the other side, to uh, African-American, white, Latino, you name it, uh, people who are policemen and policewomen, um, both ways, all sorts of stuff happening. I have no idea. Anything I would say today about it, could be critiqued and criticized, and coming from as as being a man who's white, coming white privilege, you name it. Very well, I, it could be. I'm so nearsighted on it. But here's what I know: the best way to address it is to stay focused on the central message, ministry, the word, and prayer. You know what we can do about Dallas and about racial injustices and about uh, crime against our policemen and women? We can pray. We can stay focused on what brings healing. Um, Maranatha is a word that has been popular throughout history about a cry for Christ's return. Christ, Lord Jesus, come. Come, Lord Jesus, come. Maranatha is our cry. Jesus, come fix it. Come. Return. We're ready. We're ready for this brokenness to be made whole once again. We're ready for injustice to be finally just done away with. We're ready for that. And so we see the primary coming to focus with the apostles. It would not be right for us to stop People ask pastors sometimes, well, what do you guys do all the time? You know, just pray and read your Bible? It's like, sometimes, yeah. That's study the Word and pray. And this is a challenge to me, to pray more. This is, when it, study the Bible, study the Word, pray. Regularly, what you should see, if you've got a window in, and I admit that this is an area that I'm, I'm reading a book right now on this. This is an area that I'm weak and growing. Prayerlessness. 
I pray every day, but I tell you, I read journals of, of, of uh, prayers. I just read a book last week about a, uh, it's called Memoirs of an Ordinary Pastor, and hearing his prayer for his people so convicted me. And what you should see, if you saw a window into my life, into Andy's life, into Russ's life, is you should see us weeping in prayer, crying out for your souls, and for the souls of your children, for the brokenness of our city, and for the brokenness of our world. That's, that's what you should see. And unfortunately, I'll confess, there are times that that is not the case with me. But that is our task. Ministry of the Word and prayer. We'll get into a little bit more of what that, that means here in just a second. Preaching and prayer. That's a shepherd's responsibility. There are other responsibilities, but that is the primary. So that's what's not to be done. What's not to be done in Acts chapter 6 in, in Jerusalem was to be them giving up the responsibilities, the 12, to go and to administer to the needs. But there is something that does need to be done, and that's where they don't just leave it out in the air like, sorry, widows, you're just going to have to take care of yourself. No, they take action and do the right thing. What do they say? Verse 3, they commission the congregation. Therefore, brothers or brothers and sisters, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. So here's what the apostles do. They say, I trust you. We believe you can identify the men that have the spirit of God and the wisdom of God. You can, you can do this, congregation. So I'm going to commission you, the twelve say, to discover who are, who are seven men, who can do the work of daily distribution and free us up to do the work of prayer and ministry of the Word. They commissioned the congregation to do this. Now this says a lot about the congregation. And this is one of the reasons why we're a Baptist church. We firmly believe in the priesthood of all believers. We believe the people of God have the Spirit of God. You have wisdom. You're not just a pawn of the leadership. You're not just uh, a spoke in the wheel of some big machine. You are a person of God. You have the Spirit of God within you, and you have wisdom to know who has the wisdom to lead and to serve, and who has the Spirit of God that rests upon them. You can do that. You can identify that, just like the church in Jerusalem. They recognized that the people of God had the Spirit of God. The apostles trusted the congregation to bring seven men before them. Now, in one sense, that kind of sounds a little nerve-wracking. You're going to trust 5,000. How do 5,000 people say, like, well, how do we find seven of us? Like, we don't even know all these people. Okay, this is a problem in the first megachurch, by the way. 5,000 people in Jerusalem, megachurch in a city. Uh, and they pick seven. That's a lot of work for seven deacons, isn't it? My <laughs> goodness, a lot of work for 12 apostles. How's that possible? You know, it's not. That's the thing. And so, uh, the, the apostles... Commission the church. Now, there's a couple things here that I do want to point out, and this will, we'll talk a little bit more about this when Andy gets to church membership here in a few weeks. Uh, Galatians chapter 1, it was the church that was held accountable before God for tolerating false teaching. It wasn't the leaders in Galatia. It was the church. The church... I, I, I am astonished you're so quickly deserting the one who called you by the grace of God and are turning to a different gospel, which is really no gospel at all. This is, he holds the church accountable. You have responsibilities, congregation. You have responsibilities. It, you need to identify within the people of God who it, is the, who it is one who has needs in the congregation. Okay, We help take care of each other. You recognize who it is that God is raising up in our midst and to leadership roles and to gifted responsibilities within the church. And you're responsible for the preaching. 
If I'm preaching falsely, I've said this, this to you multiple times, you have the obligation biblically to not fall in the trap that the church in Galatia fell into. They tolerated false teaching. You are not to do that. And so you are always, not to sit back in judgment all the time, just waiting to, to pounce on Andy, Russ, myself, or whoever's preaching, just to you know, always just let's see what, what something crazy he says today. But you are to hold us accountable to be faithful to the Scriptures. It's this book. This, this God's Word that we want to be faithful to. And that's your responsibility. If there's bad teaching, and that person teaching badly has no accountability, you should not follow that person. Period. If they don't have anybody checking them, there's no checks and balances doctrinally, then that is not a healthy environment. And so, Galatians chapter 1, we see that the church had responsibility. And Matthew chapter 18, the final round of church discipline was put into the hands of the church. So if Hank is sinning against me, and I come to and say, Hank, uh, you've been a jerk. And Hank's like, no, I haven't. You've been a jerk. Then Matthew 18 tells me, okay, I need to go get Andy. And me and Andy both are going to go, because maybe I'm nearsighted about it. Andy and I are going to both go and say, Hank, you're being a jerk to Jared. You need to stop it. And here's the way you're being a jerk. And if he says, nope, I'm still not. You guys are both wrong. Bible says we're to bring it to the church. That's what Jesus tells us. And the church is to act as the final judge and authority over who it is that's in the right or wrong in this. And if Hank repents, we've gained a brother, Jesus tells us. In fact, one of the biggest ways that people don't actually like what Jesus teaches is Matthew 18, by the way, and we'll talk about church discipline. Uh, you read Matthew 18 and people are like, yeah, but Jesus doesn't really know how things work. Like, it's like he doesn't really know relationships that great. It's just going to make things worse. Okay, well, you can just be the one. We can just be the one. You tell Jesus that he gets it wrong. He doesn't get it wrong. That's a right process. That's, that's the way it's supposed to be done. But the church has responsibility to make judgments in the final round of church discipline whether or not somebody can be in this family or not. And we hold each other accountable. If I get to a point where my actions are not falling in line with what I say I believe, you have the authority biblically to separate me from this body and say, we do not recognize Jared to be a Christian. He may profess to be a Christian, but we do not recognize him as being, we, we will no longer put our stamp of approval on that. And it's in the hope of, I would repent. That's what the hope is. It's not in the hope of we want to make them calloused and burdened to run off. It's in the hope for their soul. We take, uh, we, we take people's professions of faith and their actions very seriously. We hold each other accountable. And church, you're responsible for that. And so the congregation has responsibility. We see this described in Acts chapter 6, and we see it prescribed in the rest of the scriptures. Continuing on, what is to be done? Uh, they were to find men of good repute, full of the spirit and wisdom, and these will serve the widows and the broader needs even of the congregation as we find later on in the scriptures. The things that get in the way for the apostles to study and to pray, and that's not their exclusive work as we will again see here in a second, but they are to do this work. The church is to go and find these deacons to do this work, these official servants. These deacons serve, and also we find the character of these deacons in the very next chapter. I encourage you, not today, but I encourage you to read the rest of chapter 6 and in chapter 7 to see what kind of man Stephen was. Okay, I want you to read and see what a deacon is. You see a man who fights for the church. He fights for the purity of the gospel of Jesus. He gives his life in valor to the last dying breath, getting stoned to death. For the cause of Christ. That's a deacon. 
And we don't have deacons here yet. We will one day when the need is presented. We don't have that yet. We're still able to do the things that are done. Christians are willing to give their life for the Christian faith. And that's what deacons are. Lead the way. If I'm going to be stoned, bring on the stone. I'll take it for the cause of Christ. Friends, it may get to that point here, and this is not being just simply doomsday-ish. It is a reality. Um, more than anybody would have expected five years ago, we've got pressures coming our way. Like I can see, who cannot see this scenario coming up? I can see clearly that it's a real possibility that when the next, within the next decade, it's illegal to share our faith outside of this building right here. That is a possibility, a strong possibility. It's happening in Russia. One of our candidates is a fan of the Russian leader as well, by the way. I won't go there. Um, but it's important that we realize, hey, this is, we, we've got to stand. We, we, it may come a day, not when we're trying to make a point. We're just trying to be faithful to Jesus. We're not out there trying to make a point in our nation. We're just trying to be faithful to Jesus and live day to day in Carbondale, Murfreesboro, Omaha, wherever we live. And the pressures are coming to get us. We're not out looking for a fight. They just come, it comes to us. We've got to know that that's coming. Stephen, a deacon, leads the way in saying, no matter what, I'm going to be faithful to Jesus, even if it means I lose my life. It's a deacon. It's a character of a deacon. You pick, verse 3 says, full of spirit and wisdom, and we will appoint to this duty. So the church picked these seven, and the apostles laid hands on them and appointed them to this duty and this task. High and holy calling. Verse 4, but we will devote ourselves to prayer and to ministry of the word. Here is this primary task of the pastor. And I want to broaden this real quick, and I want to show our pastoral priorities and my personal pastoral priorities to you. Uh, and this comes from other places in the scriptures. So this describes to the, the primary work of pastoral ministry, which is prayer and ministry of the word. But it doesn't include all the scriptures definitions of what pastoral ministry is. And I'm going to share a few of these that are from the scriptures that I see as my role as a pastor. And we hear apostle. Peter says that um, he is a fellow elder. And so there are no more living apostles in the way that there was in the New Testament. There are those who have some apostolic giftings. But now there, as Russ preached last week, pastors and deacons, elders and deacons, shepherds, deacons. So here's what I, seven things that I see as a priority for me to you. Okay, here's what I see as my task in the life of this church. Number one is to know the gospel well in my personal devotional life. It should be true about shepherds, prayer and ministry of the word, that their life is marked by per, not just prayer and ministry of the word for you, but personal love and pursuit of Jesus. That should be the mark of a pastor. They really love Jesus. In a simple form, there's childlike faith. I love, and I've, I, almost every time I preach, I steal this, but just that infant, childlike, toddler faith of just really love Jesus. And by God's grace, I pray that's cultivated in me the rest of my life. Just simple Christian faith, the pursuit of Jesus. Number one, know the gospel well and have a personal dev devotional life. Number two, shepherd my own family well. Russ, Russ hit on this last week. Um, my job doing the work of ministry, the prerequisite for that is that my wife and I have a good relationship, love each other, and that she displays a radiance because of how I love her. And then my son is faithful. He, he's not a Christian yet. I can't wait for the day that my son becomes my brother. And I believe that's going to happen at a young age. Son becoming a brother. Brother is way more important of a title for my son than son is to me, by the way. I want him to enter into my truest family. 
which is the family of God. So I want to shepherd my own family well. If I fail at that task, then I'm, I'm not qualified to do this. I want expositional preaching and teaching of the Bible. This is what I see in my per- ministry of the Word and prayer is tagged onto that. Ministry of the Word and prayer. Expositional preaching and teaching of the Bible. Uh, we want to be Bible people. It's great to read books. It's great. I, I read a lot of books once. I read the Bible always. And that's what we want for you. Read the Bible. Read the Bible. Read the Bible. Study the Bible. The Bible's our authority. Know the Bible. Memorize the Bible. Love the Bible. Commune with God in the Bible. Love God's Word. Hear from God. Get in there and do the work. Wrestle with it. Study to show yourself approved. Study the Bible. Get to know it yourself. Get a journal out. Write out prayers. Know the Bible well. And we're committed in everything that we do as much as we possibly can and as we grow in the faith is the only way we get. We want to be faithful to commit it to, and committed to expositional preaching and teaching of the Bible. That's number three. Number four, I want to model biblical friendship and depth relationships for you with the other pastors. Deep relationships matter. With relationships, don't work in the people of God. If you just know everybody and don't know anybody, that's not a win at all. Okay? I want to model for you to the point that you might think, well, you guys, you guys just have a kind of a click. Well, it's not click. I want to be best friends with these two men, other than my wife, obviously. These two men, where they know me, they know areas and propensities of sin, we want to model what biblical friendship looks like. I have heard people say that being a pastor is lonely, and that is sin. Being a pastor should not be lonely at all. It should be the place where you have the best friendships in the world. And those men are my friends, and I'm thankful for them. So I want to model that. I see that as my responsibility to you. Because if I model, I just know everybody and don't know anybody, the message you will catch is, well, it's not that big of a deal to go deep with anybody. It doesn't really matter. As long as we have width relationships, who cares? Number five, disciple and be discipled. My commitment to you is to always be a man who's being discipled primarily by, and not exclusively, but I'm being discipled by older men and my, uh, and my pastors. I will always, if you ask me who's discipling you right now, Kirk Caldwell, Greg Donaldson, Matt Crane, Andy, Russ, and primarily Jordan and I are mutually discipling each other as well. And so I will always be a man who is discipled. And my commitment as pastors is to be discipling six to eight men at all time. Men disciple men. Women disciple women. Ladies, uh, my wife is doing a fantastic job. Jenny, Kathy, ladies, start discipling. That's Get together. Study the Word. Men, get in discipleship relationships. Um, six, know the congregation. I want to know you, and I want to visit you, and I want you to come and visit us. Seven, faithfully administer wedding, funeral, and hospital responsibilities. That, that I see is biblical ministry seen all over the pages of the Bible. So it's bigger. The central is word and prayer. But there's more than that. Okay? Pastor. Now, what's the congregational response? Verse 5. What is the congregational response in this narrative? And what they said, that's the apostles, pleased the whole gathering. <laughs> now, 5,000 people pleased. Talk about a Michael Scott win-win-win solution. Okay? This is not just a win-win. This is a win-win-win. 5,000 people respond. There's a complaint brought to the 12. The 12 give their response, and 5,000 are like, By golly, that's about as perfect as we could get. That sounds great. I'm really happy about that. Yeah, let's do it. 
Okay, th- this is how we work. We can work through complaints, and we can work through as a family. Anything that comes our way by the Holy Spirit's power. Any difficulty that comes our way, we can walk through it together. We can do this by the grace of God because it's God at work in us and through us. Verse 5, they pleased the whole gathering and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit, and they chose the other six. These, verse 6, they sat before the apostles and they prayed and laid hands on them. Here we have our official servants of the church. It worked. The congregation agreed, 5,000 of them strong. It's these seven. We know clearly it's these seven. Let's bring them to the apostles, and the apostles say, Yup, we see that, we affirm, and we appoint. Boom. Now we have official servants. The efficiency of the Holy Spirit's working amongst the people of God, it's just profound and powerful. They set them before the apostles. Not, uh, and it was, notice, the church, the congregation, that set the, set the seven before the apostles. Verse 7, what happens when all of this ends up being done? This is what we want. The Word of God continued to increase. This is Russ's first sermon at our church about the increase. We want the Word to increase. The Word of God to increase. And number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Uh, friends, that's what I want. I want conflict resolution. I want the people of God cared for. I want us to be as healthy as we can possibly be as a church. That's why we're doing this series. I want us to be on board about what it means to be the body of Christ. And I want to see the church increase. I want the Word of God revered in Carbondale. I want to see people meet Jesus and be transformed. Like, y'all want to see revival like what happened in Jerusalem? I do. I desperately want to see that. I want to see, we've already seen signs and wonders here in our midst. Kathy's I mean, Andy, Andy's mom healed of cancer. We want to see more of that stuff. We want to see lives transformed by the power of the gospel. We want to see people changed. We want to see testimony after testimony. By God's grace, let it be. Ministry of the Word and prayer, and we're going to keep doing the same thing over and over again until by God's grace we see it. And as we walk, we live in health, as much health as we can increase. Even now, we want gospel invitations to be received and for people to come and repent and be baptized having faith in Christ. Now we see three primary roles in this descriptive section. Andy, you can go ahead and come up and we'll be done. We see three primary roles and responsibilities within the body of Christ. Russ hit on uh, pastors last week and the second office is, well, so we, and I just talked about a little bit more even developing the role of pastor. It's ministry of the word prayer and then it goes out beyond that even. But then deacons, the official, here's what deacons do, deacon leadership. They're the official servants of the church meeting the needs of widows, and any other administrational tasks that may take away from keeping the primary thing the primary thing. They are recognized by the congregation and are gifted to do the work. They find out, deacons find out the needs of the body, even listening to the congregation to know what those needs are. Because even amongst that 5,000, those seven would have had to have heard and again, congregation, men and women, you have a profound responsibility. Do you realize, even, even more so, that if your authority is even over me, if I preach falsely, you should kick me out? You have a major, major responsibility in this body. How, how are needs to be known if you don't see them and present them? Like, you need to be aware of that. Who's in need? Well, spiritually, whatever. And meet those needs. 
Uh, deacons then help meet the needs. They uh, uh, Deacons do things even like building care or administrational helps. Now, so that's deacon's role. Now, congregation's role, don't be a doormat or a pawn. You have the Spirit of God upon you, and you have wisdom. Know the Bible. Get to know the Word. Identify godly leaders. Recognize the centrality of the Word and prayer. I pray that you would as well want for us our primary task as pastors, our primary task. I hope you would stand with the 5,000 and say, yes, we want you on your knees praying, and we want you studying the Bible. I hope that's what you'd stand and say. We want that. Yes, study the Word, administer the Word, and be in prayer, Jared, Andy, and Russ. And then help care for the flock, help care for each other, and then participate in the life of the body. 5,000 came that day. That was the church in Jerusalem. That was a huge church. And they came and gathered. They participated and they responded. And that's the life of the body. We're active participants. That's one of the reasons, again, why we're a Baptist church. We're going to move forward next week, talking a little bit more. We'll be in Acts chapter 2. And then... Uh, so next week, we're going to keep going, and then Acts chapter 2 next week, and then we'll have a guest preacher, and he's, gonna, he's a great guy. It's going to be a lot of fun in, in uh, two weeks from now. And then Andy, on the 31st of this month, is going to uh, uh, wrap up the series on church membership. But here's what I'm going to ask you to do. Andy, go ahead and play softly and you know set the mood, kind of. Um, and I'm just going to pray. Uh, that was in jest, by the way. But I'm just going to pray, and just going to ask the Holy Spirit to just reveal things to you. Maybe it's a responsibility that you've recognized. Okay, I need to take more responsibility in this body. I need to take more responsibility to see the needs of my brothers and sisters in Christ. I need to be a participant in the family. Whatever it is that the Holy Spirit's turning in you, I just, we're just going to ask God to do it. We started off in prayer that way, and we're going to end in prayer that way. God, meet us where we're at. Help us. Open our eyes. Let us see and hear what you want us to see and hear. So let's pray. Father God, ask, ask for that. Uh, as I have been praying for them this week, um, I ask that this passage, um, not only would be, we would respond, but God, we would begin to experience this as well. Help us to be a people who pray for revival. Who pray for the healing of our land. Who pray for the gospel to go forth, for our neighbors, for our friends. Holy Spirit, just work and convict in any way you see fit. Remind us of the gospel of Jesus. Jesus, you lived a perfect life in our place, fulfilling the law. You died a sacrificial death, dying in our place for breaking for us breaking the law. And you arose from the grave, defeating Satan's sin and death, and you reign forevermore. And one day you will return for your bride. And until then, you are making your bride ready. Thank you for washing us, for cleaning us, for picking us up, shaking us off, pulling our chin up and saying, I love you, hugging us, and calling us to move forward. Help us. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's worship.